David was an unlikely king. When we think of David, one of the first things we think of is that he was a king, and that he was uh, often looked back to as the, the greatest king that Israel had, and they often look back uh, to David as, as their hope for a future new king and the Messiah, and they would actually call that Messiah the son of David. But when you look back to David's life, and you look back to his rise from his father's house to being king, of all the people you would expect to become that king that people looked towards, David would be very low on that list. Uh, we've been talking about different call stories, and what we're going to do in the morning, uh, this lesson this morning is look at the rise of King David. We're going to look at three stories that demonstrate how he went from just the youngest brother at his uh, father's household out tending sheep to someone who was a well-respected, trained warrior in Israel, a great musician, uh, someone of wisdom, someone the people looked up to, and someone who would be not just a shepherd of sheep, but a shepherd of an entire nation. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and that's where our lesson is going to get started. 1 Samuel chapter 16. So uh, Samuel, we talked about him last week. Samuel was chosen to be a prophet, and he also was chosen in some rather uh, um, unpredictable ways. But he had that, uh, that call while he was at the tabernacle, and the voice of God was coming from the ark, and it kept saying, Samuel, Samuel. And he was thinking it was Eli calling him and trying to figure out what was going on. Well, eventually Samuel does become a prophet. And one of the things that he does is he anoints the first king of Israel. The first king of Israel is a guy named Saul. And Saul is a large, impressive-looking person. He's tall. It says he's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's someone who the people were really excited about being king because this is a guy who looks like a king. He's the type of guy who, if you were just to, to pick, based on appearances, who you wanted to be your king, Saul would be number one on that list. Um, you come to find out, however, that even though he had all the appearances of a great king, appearances don't always tell the whole story. In fact, they often tell very little bit of the story. In fact, sometimes they tell the wrong story. Um, what happens with Saul is he ends up becoming a king, and it's not very long until he starts letting the authority that he now has as king trump, in his mind, even the authority of God. Certain things that God has said to do, Saul now thinks he can do in a different way and do better. And all of a sudden, he begins to spiral to where someone who was chosen to be a, the anointed leader of God's people is now actually uh, murderous. He's trying to kill his uh, enemies. He's uh, disobeying God. He's someone who, uh, I mean, it's a tragic tale of a downward spiral of a king gone mad, basically, is, is the, the way the story of Saul goes. And as Saul begins to spiral downward, you begin to see the ascent of David upward. And David is the one who will replace Saul as king. So by the time you get to 1 Samuel 16, Saul has already been told he's going to lose his kingdom. He's in essence, a, he's a sitting duck. He, he is still king, and he's going to be king for a while. But his kingdom is not going to last uh, it is not going to continue on with his children. It's going to die with him, and the kingdom will be passed on to another, who we're going to find out in chapter 16 is David. And Samuel's the one who's told to go and find who this replacement is going to be. Samuel, when God tells him, all right, I want you to go, I'm going I'm to take you to Bethlehem, and I'm going to show you who to anoint as king, Samuel does not want to do it at first, 
because, he says, if Saul finds out that while he's king, I'm going to find someone else to anoint as king, he's going to kill me. And so God says, well, then go for a sacrifice. Go there, we'll have a sacrifice, and if anyone asks, you can say, we're going there for a sacrifice. By the way, while you're there, meet up with a guy named Jesse, because he has a son I'd like to introduce you to. Uh, and so Samuel goes for a sacrifice in Bethlehem, and he ends up meeting with the family of Jesse, and Jesse has eight sons. And at this point, Samuel doesn't know who the king is going to be, but he knows it's going to be one of those eight sons. And he looks out, and if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 6, this is what Samuel's thinking. It says, when he looked, he surely, uh, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. It's like, oh, or is before him. Basically, Samuel looks out and he sees the firstborn son of Jesse. And he sees that he's an impressive looking guy. He looks like a king. And Samuel apparently hasn't learned the lesson from the days of Saul that you don't want to choose a king that way. Because he's pretty confident this has to be him. By the way, this idea of appearances, and the person who looks like a great king uh, not always working out is going to be crucial when we get to uh, the next uh, chapter when David goes to fight Goliath, and you have one there who looks like the greatest and mightiest warrior of all who's causing everyone to fear. One of the main lessons that the book of Samuel is trying to teach is what you'll see here in verse 7. And verse 7 of chapter 16 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his outward appearance or his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's such a crucial idea uh, because so often throughout Samuel and throughout our lives, you'll meet someone and they might look like they have the perfect appearance. They might look like they have everything together. They might look like they're the greatest king or they might look like the greatest warrior. But looks can be deceiving. And God wants us to look for something deeper. And God looks for something deeper. God's not really impressed by how attractive we are or how tall we are. Uh, God can see things that are more attractive than us, and God is taller than us. Like, God's not—that's not what he focuses on. God instead looks at something else. God looks at the heart. And that's what's ultimately going to separate the winners and the losers in the book of 1 Samuel. You often think the winners are the powerful and the rich and the mighty and the strong and the tall— and God is going to show one by one how they tumble down. And so as uh, Samuel is there to choose this king, he ends up going past Eliab, and then he goes to all the other brothers, and the, ne the next uh, six of them, and he goes through seven of these brothers, and he doesn't find the one that the Lord has chosen. The Lord hasn't, hasn't chosen any of them. And so he finally looks at Jesse, and he says uh, in verse 10, uh, sorry, verse 11, Then Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he says, Okay, we'll get him back here. What's interesting about the whole logic of this story is that that whole sentence that God offers where he says, don't look at his outward appearance, don't look at his height, and then the whole fact that he goes through all these brothers and it's the last one, that he wasn't even invited, you know, he's still out tending the sheep and Jesse didn't even think to have him come. Like, all of this is showing you that the one who's going to be chosen, David, is not the one who people would choose. 
He's not the one his father would choose. He's not the one Samuel would choose. He's not the one that people looking at the stature or the height or the greatness of a person would choose. He's someone who would be completely ignored in this conversation if not for the Lord making the decision. And that becomes an important idea. God is the one who is choosing David. In fact, God has been preparing David for this. He's set David apart for this purpose and for this task. And God is going to, in an interesting couple of ways, bring David about for it. So anyway, David ends up coming. Uh, he makes the arrival. And we find out in verse 12. So he sent and he brought David in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. That's a phrase about David that will be repeated a couple of times as we look at these stories about him. But he's someone who, he might not be the tallest and most impressive guy in the world, but he is handsome. And he does have beautiful eyes. And, uh, you know, if you're looking thematically, one of the things you'll notice as you read 1 Samuel, and we've mentioned it before, is that if someone's described as being very tall, they're probably going to fall. If someone is described as having great hair, they're not going to, to fare very well. Uh, that's a, that's a, a David's son, Absalom. But you, you see that several times. Like the person who you would expect to be the best looking or the tallest, they're the one who is ultimately going to be uh, rejected. David is someone who was not the tallest, didn't look like a king. People wouldn't have chosen him, but God did. But then you do find out he has beautiful eyes and he's handsome. There's like a mixture there of he's rejectable, but he's still handsome. And I think as you look at his reign, and if you look at him as his king, you're going to find that mixture in there. You're going to find some areas where he does great, and you're going to find some areas where maybe he looks and he's a little too focused on things that are beautiful, like when he sees Bathsheba. Sometimes you'll see, some, and, and, and you, you wonder if that phrase might actually, since it's a major theme in the book of 1 Samuel, meant, be meant for the reader to go, hmm, I wonder if there's going to be more complex nature to this guy than we originally thought. Uh, but David comes forth, he is chosen, and in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. In the midst of his brothers, he, he messiahed him. He, he made him the anointed. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So the first uh, story on the rise of David is he's the youngest. He's not someone you would immediately choose. He's not who Samuel would have chosen. He's not who Jesse would have chosen. He's out tending the sheep, just doing his work, living his life. And all of a sudden he's chosen and anointed to become the next king of Israel, which is really an incredible and remarkable thought. Imagine just waking up that morning, going out and tending the, the sheep, and then that night going to bed thinking, I was just messiahed. You know, that's, that, that's, that doesn't happen to a lot of people. And so uh, that's what happens to, to David right there. The reason I, I use the word messiahed there is that is that, that's the Hebrew word for anointed. Um, and so it's, uh, he was anointed. He was, he, that's, that's what the word messiah means, the anointed one. Um, and, so, and so that's what uh, happens to David. Okay, then we're introduced to another story. David receives the Spirit of the Lord. Saul now loses the Spirit of the Lord and receives a distressing spirit. He receives a, a spirit that causes him tremendous anguish and, uh, and, and confusion, and, and it's a spirit that, uh, that is um, of evil, and it begins to terrorize him. And when this happens, it seems to come on him in spells. It doesn't seem like it's, it's always, but it seems like it happens to him. And all of a sudden, he will start to lose control and he'll become angry. And so his servants think, well, let's come up with a way to, uh, 
to bring some calmness to the life and some peace to the life of Saul. And they have heard about someone who's an extremely talented musician. And they think maybe bringing someone who's great at music can come in here, and when you start to get those terrors and that anguish and that distress, the music can bring you some peace. By the way, that, people still do that today. You know, it's like music has a way of, of bringing some peace or bringing a, a comfort in some difficult situations. Music can speak from the soul, you know, and it can speak to the soul. And, and so they're thinking maybe that can happen with King Saul. And what's interesting, when you get to verse 18, this is, a, this is who the servants know about. It says, then one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. And so Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the flock. So again, David's out with the flock again. And so in the first story, we find out David has a unique connection with Saul and that he's going to be his replacement. In this story, we see a connection between David and Saul again, in that David, surprisingly, like you think he's the replacement, so their relationship's not going to be a peaceful one, but David ends up being the one who brings peace to the mind of King Saul when King Saul is in turmoil and when he's being terrorized. Like David comes to him and ends up uh, soothing him. And so that's what happens. David comes and uh, in verse 21, David came to Saul and attended him and Saul loved him greatly. Like Saul ends up loving this kid who comes and who's able to play this music and who's able to bring him peace and he makes him his armor bearer. So Saul is going to, he like, elevates David already. Uh, David has gone from a shepherd to the king's personal musician to even the armor bearer of the king. So we're seeing him rise up through the ranks already. Um, Saul, at this point, does not know that he is promoting his replacement. Uh, and so he, there's, there's some interesting personal dynamics and some relationship uh, drama that, that's about to be a brewing. But uh, as of right now, that's what happens. And here's what happens in verse 23. This is like the summary of the second David on the rise story. It says, so it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and this evil spirit would depart from him. So David was able to, to cause the evil spirit to leave and to bring peace to Saul. That's story two. So you see David the shepherd, you see David the musician, and then the third story, we're going to be introduced to David again. It's, it's almost like there were three introductions to David, just all placed by each other, and they all give these descriptions of what kind of person he is and who he is, and, and they describe his family and all of that. And this third one is probably the most famous of all of them. It might be one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Even a lot of people who are not Christians have heard of the names David and Goliath. Uh, that, that pops up a, a lot even in our culture, and that's what uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17 is, the story of David and Goliath. In this story, we're going to meet King Saul. We're going to meet David. We're going to meet David's brothers again. We're going to meet Jesse again, and we're going to meet someone who, if you let appearances be your primary source of judgment, if you're going to let your snap judgments make your decisions for you, you're going to meet someone who you think is the greatest, most powerful, unbeatable warrior the world has ever seen. By the end of the story, you'll see a young shepherd boy standing over him, and you'll see the great, tested battle warrior uh, lying lifeless on the ground. This is a story that 
encapsulates a lot of the message of the book of 1 Samuel. uh, That those who are powerful and mighty end up falling, and those who are low are made great. In fact, if you go back, before we get there, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a prayer by Hannah. And this is just a Bible study tip. Anytime you're reading the Bible and you're near the beginning of a book of the Bible, like 1 Samuel, uh, or you know, like sometimes you'll see this in the letters of Paul, if you read a lengthy prayer or a song or a poem or something like that, pay very careful attention. Because a lot of times that is intentionally structured to give you what the major ideas throughout the rest of the book are going to be. You'll see that here in this prayer. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse 3. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let the arrogant come out of uh, do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. So if you're reading for Samuel and you see someone coming out and boasting very arrogantly, very loudly, be prepared for that person to meet their reckoning. Uh, then you get to verse four. The bows of the mighty are shattered, and the feeble gird their strength. So the mighty one, the one who is the, you know, has the bow and the military warrior, that one who's so mighty is the one who's ultimately going to be shattered, or their bows are going to be shattered, and the feeble will gird their strength. Verse 5, those who were full hire themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry cease to be hungry. Even the barren gives birth to seven. She who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he rises up. The Lord makes the poor rich and the low he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles to inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he uh, who set um, and he set the world on them. All right, so you can keep reading through this, but notice the idea of role reversal is kind of uh, central here. The one who's the mighty great warrior, he's the one who's brought low. The one who's arrogant is the one who's made a fool of. It's the one who's poor who ends up becoming a noble. It's kind of like David, right? You know, David, uh, he ends up being lifted up to nobility. It's the one who, uh, who is hungry who becomes full, and the one who's full becomes hungry. And you see all of this happening. That should be preparing you for the types of stories you're going to see in 1 Samuel. That should prepare you that when you see the giant step out in front of an army and mock them and mock their God and arrogantly proclaim how powerful and mighty he is and that no one can stand before him. And he is absolutely battle-tested. He's taller than any other person around. And he is, has all of the armor you could ever imagine. In fact, he not only has the, the heaviest uh, uh, of breastplates and the huge weapon and the massive muscles and all that, he has an armor-bearer who stands before him holding his armor to protect him. When you see that scene, be prepared for the mighty to be shattered. Uh, that's, and be prepared for the lowly to, to rise up and do it. Uh, that's what's going to happen in the story of David and Goliath. So, We are introduced to Goliath in chapter 17, uh, the first couple of verses, and there's, there's verse after verse describing not just his height, but everything about his appearance, right? His appearance matters so much for this story. The, the weight of his armor and the weight of the head of his spear and all of his weapons and all of these things. In fact, the fact that he has an armor bearer in front of him. Uh, in chapter 17 and verse 4, Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Um, 
small note about that. Six cubits in a span. Uh, so a cubit uh, traditionally is like from there to there, and, and that would be like 18 inches or so. So And then a span would be like maybe half a foot or something. So a lot of people put his uh, height based on that at about nine and a half feet tall. There are uh, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts, uh, like th those come from what are called the Masoretic texts. Um, long before those, we've discovered uh, some manuscripts called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they have a lot of really early, much earlier Hebrew manuscripts, and in those, his height is a little different. His height is four cubits in a span. Um, that's the same thing that's in the, uh, the Greek Septuagint. So the Greek Septuagint is the, the translation of Hebrew into Greek that, uh, that people read. Like most of the time when the New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament, that's what they're quoting from. And in the Greek Septuagint, it's four cubits in a span. And so when Josephus, when he talks about the story of David and Goliath, his Bible says four cubits in a span. So all of that is to say this, um, Goliath might be nine and a half feet tall. But the earliest manuscripts in Hebrew and in Greek, and when people quote the story, have them at closer to like six foot six, something like that, six and a half feet tall. Which you might read that and think, well, that's not that tall. But based on like archaeological evidence from ancient Israel, um, most Israelite men were like five foot to five foot two. Like we, we live in a pretty tall culture. Uh, not a lot of places around the world even today, you know, are, are, do people regularly hit six foot tall. And, uh, and so all of that is to say this. He might not be like miraculously tall. He might just be a big, strong warrior, like guy who's like 6'6", six, 6'9", six, six, something like that, stands way above everybody else, very strong, very powerful. At least that's the way the earliest manuscripts tell the story. You can, you can do it. Some of your Bibles might have a footnote about that. Uh, but anyway, you do with it what you want. Uh, but here's the point. He is the most impressive-looking warrior anyone's ever seen, and he embodies the might and the strength of the Philistine army. And he stands before the children of Israel, and he taunts them in verse 8. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine uh, and you servants of Saul? Choose for yourselves a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So what he's doing is he's basically saying, I am going to represent all of the armies of the Philistines. If any one of you out of your whole army can stand before me, every one of us will become your servants. Who do you have? Who's man enough to come and face me? And as the Israelites look at themselves, their knees are knocking, and they are terrified, and their hearts are, uh, are, are racing, and they're trying to think, what are, what are we going to do? And they don't know, and everyone's faint and scared, and no one comes out to face him. It's like, remember the story of uh, the mighty Egyptians who had enslaved Israel, and yet God gave them the victory and freed them from Egypt? That's the type of story that should fill Israel with confidence at moments like this. But no one seems to be remembering that type of story. They just look and they see a man who is much larger than them, much stronger than them, battle-tested, never lost a battle in his life, and they think, we don't have anyone like that here. We don't have anyone like that among our ranks. This is, by the way, the same fear. Do you remember when the children of Israel, when they sent the spies out to spy out the promised land? And they had the 12 representatives from each tribe who went in there to check it out. They said, 
the people are too big. It's like a bunch of Goliaths walking around in there. We can't do it. And they end up stuck in the wilderness for 40 years, one for each day that they spied out the land. It's like they have these stories in their history. Don't be afraid of the height and of the appearance of others. Samuel was just told, don't look at the appearance. When you're choosing a king, don't look at the appearance. That's the lesson they need right now. And there's one Israelite who seems to know that lesson, but he's not in their army. His three older brothers are, though. Uh, David's three older brothers are part of that uh, army. They are standing there before Goliath, and none of them are going out to face him. Saul isn't either, by the way. And Saul is also someone who stands head and shoulders above everyone else. Saul refuses to go out there. And so all of Israel, they don't know what they're going to do. They're all too cowardly to go out there and face him. So David is told by his father, go out to where your brothers are, bring them some bread, bring them some cheese, uh, give me a report back of how things are going, see if you can get a token from them. And David is sent to go bring his brothers some food. While he's there, he hears the taunt of Goliath. He sees the massive man step out onto the battlefield. He sees him taunt the armies of Israel, and he sees everyone remain silent, and no one stands up to him. Now, Saul might be thinking something like, uh, what does this mean for me that, that none of my people are brave enough to go fight him? And the brother of David is thinking, oh, David, he's just coming out here. He's making a fool of us, and he's just trying to see a battle. And like, all kinds of people are having all kinds of thoughts. David seems to be the only one whose thought is, what does this mean for God that someone can come out here and mock and ridicule and taunt his armies and no one goes out there to show him what God can actually do. It's like David's the one who hears the taunt and begins to think about what this means for the God of Israel. He's the one who's going to carry God's name with him and represent it well so that he can show who the Lord is even to all of the Philistines there. And so David ends up hearing that there's a nice reward for whoever goes out there. Saul is trying to get someone to go. So he says, tell you what, if you go out there, your family can live tax-free in the land. Uh, if you go out there, I will make you rich. If you go out there, I'll give you my daughter to marry. Like, someone go out there and deal with this problem. And none of them want to, except for David, who finally uh, stands up and says that he will. He goes and he talks to Saul. And as Saul sees the one brave enough to go do it, you have to think Saul's not thrilled that this is the one who comes forward. He's not even part of the army, like uh, at least not part of this army with that group. Um, he's a shepherd. He's, he's not really battle-tested at this point. Um, he's someone, if you look at, uh, at verse 32, I'm sorry, verse 33, it says, Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. It's like he's been killing people like you since he was your age. And now he's like a grown adult man, and he is battle-tested. He knows what he's doing. He's a lot bigger than you. He's a lot stronger than you, has better armor than you. He's prepared for this battle. Saul has every reason in the world to say no right now. But Saul, while I haven't said too many good things about him so far, he is someone who, even in his disobedience, often still has regard for the Lord. He still trusts God. He just does things his own way sometimes. But it's like, even when he's disobedient, he's often disobedient for the Lord, which God doesn't appreciate. But he, he's, he's still thinking about God in it. And here David's going to give him an answer. David says, look, I might not have been out with the army for that long, but I've been prepared for this moment for a long time. 
The Lord has prepared me for this moment. I'm a shepherd. And he brings up being with a shepherd again. And as a shepherd, I have to protect these sheep. And sometimes a lion comes after one of them. And I'll grab that thing by the mane and I'll wrestle it and I'll kill it. And sometimes a bear might come after them. And I'll strike it down and I'll kill it. And this Philistine to me is no different. He's coming after the sheep. And I'm going to stand up to him. And I'm going to be brave. And I'm going to defend Israel. And it's not going to be me who gives them the victory. But the Lord God who saved me from the bear and the lion will save me from this Philistine this day. Saul hears that. And he says, verse uh, 37, Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. He ends up agreeing. That's kind of a pretty impressive act of faith on Saul's part, I think. Uh, so I'll give credit where credit's due there. So then David uh, is getting ready, and they're going to start putting the armor on him. But remember, he doesn't have his own armor. So they put Saul's armor on him. Um, there's going to be a couple of problems with that since they don't seem to be the same size. But also, this is untested armor. David's never worn this before, and he doesn't want to go out in this important of a battle in armor that he's never worn or tested before. So he doesn't put it on. But he does something else. And this is key to understanding the story of David and Goliath. He goes in verse uh, 40. He takes off the armor. says he took his stick in his hand. That's like his shepherding rod, his stick that he uses for sheep. He took his stick in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's bag, which he had. So what does he look like right now? He's wearing a shepherd's bag. You can't see what's inside of it. And he has a shepherd's stick. And then he hits a sling, and he puts it in his hand, and he approaches the Philistine. So the Philistine, we've already seen, he's massive. He has another person standing in front of him, bearing his armor. He's wearing a huge uh, breastplate. He's wearing a helmet. He's wearing greaves. He is decked out from head to toe, uh, almost entirely head. Um, and, uh, and he has a spear in his hand, the, the top of which weighs like roughly 15 pounds or so. Like He is the most impressive battle-tested guy you could ever imagine. And then you have someone who's immediately recognized as a youth. He's someone who we already were told, don't look at the outward appearance of this guy. He's not, he's not going to be the tallest in the world. He's not going to have the most impressive stature. Uh, and he goes out there, and he doesn't even have a sword. You remember when he told Saul about how he defeated the bear and the lion? He talks about actually, like, fighting them. Here, I think Saul's thinking he's going to go fight the guy. Like, actually fight him. And he says, well, put, get your sword and put on some, some armor. He's expecting David to go out there and try to beat up Goliath, mano y mano, like strength versus strength. And David has no intention of doing that. Um, we often uh, think of this story as, like, the strong losing to the weak because the weak was made strong. But really, it's more than that. God used the strengths of David, like wisdom and shrewdness, to cause him to defeat his enemy in a way no one's expecting. Saul is not expecting him to sling a rock at the guy. In fact, this is a, a short-range battle. In the, the, the sling, in the rock, that's more what you do for a long-range battle. Like, no one's expecting him to do that. Goliath certainly isn't expecting it. When David goes out there to face Goliath, Goliath sees him, no armor, has a stick in his hand, and he says uh, in chapter 17 and verse 43, Goliath says to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David, and the Philistine cursed David by their gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky, the beasts of the field. He's like, 
all right, come here. We're going to end this thing right now. And David, he's going to go a little bit, but he's not going to go all the way there. Uh, this is a story about David's wisdom in outfoxing Goliath. Uh, David did the unexpected. Goliath saw the stick. He's like, are you coming to me with a stick? You think I'm a dog? You're going to beat me away? <laughs> like, that's what the street uses a stick for, to beat away a dog or an animal from, like, attacking the sheep or something. He said, is that what you're going to try to do to me? And uh, David's answer is no. But he is going to win, and he's not going to do it with a sword. There's some irony in David's response. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Notice he will not deliver by sword or spear, because David doesn't have a sword or spear. He has something else that Goliath isn't expecting, but he does not have a sword and a spear. And, and that becomes kind of the ironic twist here. Goliath certainly has a sword, and he certainly has his javelin, and he has all his stuff, and he thinks that stuff will protect him. Not with the way that the Lord works and moves. And so David goes out there, and uh, verse 50, uh, after David starts running, like the, the battle starts and David sprints at him, takes out the stone, whips it through the air, hits Goliath, knocks him down. Uh, like, I think everyone at that moment was like, I was expecting a battle, and they never even got close to each other. <laughs> like, like that, that shocks everyone who's there that day. Um, and then David, in verse 50, says, Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Um, the Lord gave him the victory, but not in the way everyone thought it would happen. Again, appearances are not the, going to be the prevailing story. Uh, you might have this person who looks like a great king, but God is choosing this one. You might think the sword is the right uh, weapon in this battle, but God's going to use this one. You might think this is the greatest warrior the world has ever seen, but God's going to give the victory to this one. And over and over again, the unexpected happens, whether it's the unexpected weapon. And in essence, that's what David is. David's the unexpected king. He's the unlikely king. He's the one no one's thinking is going to happen. He's the one who Samuel says, surely it's this one. Jesse doesn't even call him in. But this becomes a picture of what David's reign is. It becomes a picture of what God is doing in Israel. It becomes a picture of why God chooses Israel. Instead of choosing Babylon or Assyria or Egypt, one of the great mighty nations, he chooses the small nation. Instead of the, the great, strong, uh, you know, armored warrior, he chooses the shepherd who has a, a shepherd's bag and a stick in his hand. Instead of choosing the, the great, mighty, rich, powerful king to be his Messiah who brings salvation to the world, he chooses the carpenter who ends up being rejected and dying on the cross. Like, the story of God's relationship to humanity is often the unexpected becoming the prevailing story. And that's the story of David and Goliath. I think there's a lot of lessons you can learn from it, and we need to draw our lesson to a close, so I'll say a couple things quickly. Um, number one, even the unlikely king can be chosen, and appearances are not what matters most. 
I think that's true when it comes to David, certainly. It's true when it comes to these battles that we read about. But it's true in the life and service of the church, too. We might often think that the person who has the nice title by their name, uh, the person who you see the most, the person who has like the most, the most limelight or the most active, uh, visible position in the church, they're the ones who do the most for the church. But very often, that's not the case. Very often, the people who are doing the most for the kingdom of God are people you don't see very often. Uh, they're people who might not always get the limelight. They might not always get the accolades. They might not look like the person who you think is leading the church or doing this, but they're humbly, faithfully serving God. They're being shepherds. They are out tending the sheep. I mean, that's what David was doing, and God was using that to do great things for him. So, so often, it's the one who is overlooked who is faithfully doing the will of God. And I think that needs to be mentioned. There are a lot of people here who you might not get the thanks or, uh, that you probably deserve, uh, but you're doing a lot in service to the king. You might be overlooked, but God is using you to accomplish great things. And I think that needs to be remembered and commended. Um, number two, unlikely events in your life can prepare you for the work that God has. Like, I wonder... I wonder, uh, however long ago it was, before the whole uh, Goliath thing, David's out there one day just hoping for an easy day with his sheep, and all of a sudden the lion comes out. And he has to put his life on the line, and he's able to get the victory of this lion. I wonder when he got home that night, he was like, boy, I had a rough day at the office. <laughs> like, like, it was an unexpected uh, uh, ad ad you know, adversity that entered into his life that he had to deal with. And he does. I doubt that night he knew, hey, I'm going to be able to use this in years to come to stand up for the armies of Israel against a great giant. And so often we might face those unexpected or frustrating dilemmas in our life. And they might very well be the types of things that are teaching us the type of patience that we need because God's going to use that. It might be the types of things that are teaching us how to be creative or how to endure, or how, to, how to, uh, to reach out and serve others even when they're unwilling. It's like there are things that you go through in your life that we might not know how God is using that to shape us, but there very well may be a purpose for it. And so when you find those frustrations that are happening throughout your day, recognize that God might be using that, just like he used a lion and a bear to help prepare David. Uh, number three, David was chosen in chapter 16 to be king. In chapter 17 is when he meets Goliath. I wonder, if we're talking about call stories, he has a very clear call in chapter 16 when he's called forth and he's anointed. When you get to chapter 17, you never really hear a divine voice say to David, hey, go fight Goliath. He seems to sense this call, and I wonder if because of the call that he had early on, that he's supposed to be this Messiah-anointed figure, if that emboldened him to have the courage to recognize, I need to stand up for Israel and for the Lord God right here and now as Goliath comes forth. Like, you wonder if this call opened up his awareness to sense other calls. And I, I tend to think that as Christians, when we talk about calling, there might be some of that at play too. You might be called to be a Christian, and so you become a Christian, and then you're living your life as a Christian, and you might not hear a voice saying, hey, go help this person in need, 
but you begin to sense, because I was called to be a Christian, I'm the type of person now who will help a person in need. I am the type of person now who will serve. I'm the type of person now who will uh, be sacrificial. I'm the type of person now who, when I see a need, I will try to help solve it. When the church is asking for help in, in, in teaching classes, or the church is asking for help in, in helping uh, take care of widows, or the church is asking for volunteers who can help lead in the service, or all of you, whatever you know, you're thinking of, perhaps it's your initial call as a Christian that makes you keenly aware of the other calls that you can now respond to. And you don't necessarily need a burning bush moment or the voice calling from the the ark or uh, the thunder coming from heaven and telling you, go do this. Perhaps you can now sense the calls that God is opening. David was also someone who received the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the Holy Spirit can help us become aware of ways that we can serve God and of vocations we can have in honor and service of him. And we should listen and we should pay attention and we should answer those calls as we see needs arise. Perhaps needs that we see become the calls that we adhere to. And finally, uh, number four, and I think this is always an important lesson, don't let fear keep you from obedience. Um, David was anointed. He was spirit-filled. He did have a history of God being with him, and that gave him the confidence that no one else in Israel seems to have. If you are a Christian, the Lord is with you. The Holy Spirit of God is with you. God has been with you and will continue to be with you, so live with the confidence that the Lord is behind you as you seek to to serve him. Uh, Don't let fear keep you from obedience. And David certainly didn't. Uh, And uh, he makes a pretty good story because of that. So let's see what stories we can make in our own lives uh, as we act out in trust and faithfulness. If there's anyone here who wants to make that initial call, uh, who wants to to act out in obedience right here this morning by naming Jesus as Lord of your life and having your sins washed away in baptism, uh, please, you can talk to one of our elders in the back or you can come sit on the front row, but please make it known while we stand and as we sing.